Welcome to the 85th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Ken Mink. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about concurrency and parallelism in systems design. This is one of those topics that comes up a lot in programming circles and doesn't get a lot of attention paid when building systems or designing around them. And I wanted to... Does it come up in programming circles enough? Probably not, honestly. And that's (laughs) why we have the two of you here. Um, Ken Mink is a colleague of ours. We've a friend and a colleague of ours. He's worked on large-scale distributed weather systems before, actual parallel programming and parallel cluster operations. And so we thought he would be an excellent guest to bring on to this episode to kind of talk about some of these the real world side of these practical design things. And I will wax philosophically about missing doing HPC work. Yeah, I miss it too. It's uh, it's fun to play with those big machines. And Ken, you were doing mostly weather modeling, right? Right. Uh, we were, I worked for a commercial weather forecaster. So it was a company that sold uh, targeted weather forecasts and we ran our own model, which uh, was quite an undertaking. And we had a very large HPC cluster that ran the production model. Um, But as far as HPC work, it was also very, very different than most HPC work because it was a production operationally, as we all think of it, production system, whereas the model was, the output of the model was for customers and it had to run and had to produce output. And most HPC work is research-related and university-related and operates on a very, very different paradigm. And uh, we we cared about operational statistics and uptime, and I spent a lot of off-hours work propping things back up, which most HPC jobs are business hours best effort. So, yeah. Very different and and very germane to this discussion as we ran things that cared very much about parallelism and we cared very much about concern, concurrency because we had to provide operational resources to the model. So yeah, in my HPC days, we did lots of astrophysics modeling and if the model fails or hardware fails and you have to restart the run the worst you're doing is, you know, delaying somebody's doctoral research. Uh, But we also did some work with uh, weather forecasts and flooding forecasts. And the flooding forecasts we ran and generated were sent to NOAA for distribution as part of weather. And that information in an incoming hurricane, as you well know, is pretty critical to folks. That's when you don't want things to go down. We cared so much that we ran two concurrent versions of the model at the same time, because you know when you run when a single model run t- uses two hundred compute nodes, one hardware hiccup takes it down. You can't start over. the The customer has to get their data. So we ran two two instances of the model at once on separate nodes, in the hopes that one would finish successfully. Generally, both did, but we we spent lots of money to make you sure had that paying customers i just had angry professors <laughs> but we had lots of researchers too and they just got bumped so that was that that was the big difference between our our system and most hpc systems the researchers that we had were second class citizens and production work was first class 
So I think this is a good opportunity to jump in and talk a little bit about the differences between concurrency and parallelism, because they're not really well understood. And the simple version is that concurrency is the ability of a system or a group of systems to schedule multiple tasks simultaneously. Parallelism is when you're actually running tasks at the same moment, independent of each other. And it's a nuanced difference, but it's an important difference. Most people uh, think these are synonyms. Synonyms. There we go. Or either just confuse them all together. But yeah, concurrency, being able to have multiple threads of execution and being able to switch to a different thread when the first thread is blocked. This is how Linux can run multiple processes, even if you only have one CPU in the machine. When Brendan and I were talking about it earlier, um, I, I likened it to my experience with the weather forecast of that was truly parallel. There were different chunks of the forecast running on different nodes at the same time. However, the concurrency was they were all writing to a single file system that had to store the data, maintain it, and provide it back to other pieces without corruption, without disruption, and make sure it persisted correctly. Because no matter what you're writing, no matter where it is, someplace there's a block on a disk with data. And you have to make it look like everybody can use it, write it, whatever. But in reality, there's a block on a disk. Yeah, and you'll you'll see things in the literature about clustered file systems or multi-system file systems or all those things. And there's there's been a bunch of them. There's been Lustre and GPFS, I think, from IBM back in the day. And Sun had one that they were using on, on Sun Cluster. And you could have disks mounted or file systems mounted on multiple machines read-write simultaneously. But you couldn't actually read and write the same blocks simultaneously because that's not safe. And so there's a lot of semantics and a lot of really interesting engineering that goes into making sure that nobody actually tries to update the same inode at the same moment. Because file systems, the source of truth is not parallel. It is concurrent. Ah, locking. You can do things like Ceph does or like Luster does, and you can break the the job into lots of smaller pieces. And you, if you carefully orchestrate how you distribute those pieces, you can make it look like the file system is parallel because you can have it look like you're having different things writing at the same moment to the same file system or the same array. But under the covers, you've, you've broken it into smaller discrete pieces, each of which is now its own concurrent system. It's tricky. The magic, whether you're doing code or designing some bit of infrastructure, or working some application in the cloud, is understanding concurrency and parallelism, and what's concurrent and what's not parallel, and being able to gather the information of each part in the entire system, and understand the properties of each part in the entire system, which brings you the understanding of you can use a load balancer and read multiple connections off of the network through many different daemons, all in parallel. But at some point, you have to funnel that data together and reduce it and write it to the single database. And so while parts of that operation are truly parallel, there are, there are the blocking parts of that operation that are concurrent 
but you need to have the proper locking semantics around so that they're safe. And I always say this. I was just going to say, I, I always say someplace, someplace there's a semaphore. Someplace there's something that you bump into that can only happen for one thread at one time, and you have to switch between them. And understanding where you have that choke point and how you can optimize for it is a huge part of large distributed systems. It's 80% of the problem, I think. And I find that traditional databases are a really good way to look at this problem. So if you think about what Jack was saying, where you have multiple people reading and writing, multiple web servers or application servers that are writing to your, your database backend, be it a MySQL or Postgres instance you're running, or if you're doing Amazon Aurora, or if you're doing whatever it is you're doing, you still have the acid semantics. You create a transaction, you test the transaction, you commit the transaction. And if the constraints are violated because some other transaction has come along and changed another property of the database, your transaction gets um, revoked. It gets handed back to you as an error that it doesn't work. And so there is a, there's a threading and a locking model there that doesn't let you do things that are not correct. And for example, in the no, the, no, the NoSQL databases, MongoDB got a lot of uh, justly deserved criticism in the beginning. There's a, a rather amusing video that I'll throw into the show notes from back then about MongoDB as web scale. And they had made the decision that in their testing configurations, they were going to turn off a lot of those locking things because, hey, it's, it's eventually consistent and we're just going to let things sort of write over each other and it'll be fine, right? Because you get really great benchmarks out of it. It goes really fast to allow unsafe data parallelism, but it's unsafe. And if you care about your data, you can't do that. So it's it's one of those places to look about, yeah, you, you can disable some of these checks and these locks, but don't. And think about why those exist and how and how they are. Um, another way to think about it is if you're doing if you're doing cloud stuff, you know, cloud-enabled services, how many of the data services truly are multi-region? Almost none. Oh, Amazon. And the reason that they're not multi-region is that multi-region data systems with low latency are really, really hard because of exactly this problem. You can't do eventual writes on a lot of these things. You have to, you have, to have it coalesce into a single point, which means you're blocking on the speed of light and you're waiting. Databases aren't my favorite thing to compare to. But this is, this is one of the things I quiz people about in interviews. Can a DevOps, SRE, system administrator type person sort of grapple with and understand the concepts of taking a system apart and knowing what's parallel, what's concurrent, and how to disassemble that so when you get to the end state, you have a safe end state? When, I don't know. I don't think I have a favorite metaphor for this. I guess I'll have to stick with your database. Another way to look at the you're, you're building a system. You're you're trying to figure out how to handle a real world problem. Given the problem, you have a petabyte of data to copy of a hundred million files. It's a huge mess of small files. And let's pretend, for sake of argument, that you have unlimited network bandwidth. If you're trying to rsync the data over and use checksums to make sure the data actually gets from one system to the other, doing it with a single pass is going to be extraordinarily slow. There are implementations that people have written of wrappers around rsync where you can run rsync in parallel, GNU parallel, or you can do other ways to do this and break it into like top-level directories of the project. And now you're running 10 or 15 or 20 instances of rsync simultaneously. And now you've moved the problem from being a concurrent problem to being a parallel problem. And you actually get that linear speed up in, 
I'm moving things and I'm moving things in a safe way in a way that doesn't that doesn't block and doesn't break and doesn't kill everything else. But as you do that more and more, it adds overhead to the job. So how much complexity are you moving into this to make it go faster? There's always, there's always the complexity trade-off you have to think about because these problems are are very tricky and very important to get right. But that's a good example. And to sort of deconstruct it just a bit, when you run rsync, the first thing it does is it checksums the files on both sides to find the differences. So when you're running a single rsync command on this theoretical petabyte of database uh, files, you're not actually going to copy data around. You're going to spend the first several hours to days building checksum lists and making sure that all those checksums of files can fit in memory. And then eventually you get to actually moving data around. So the first step is solving the, the computational part. And by dividing that up into multiple rsync commands that target specific subdirectories, you can divide up the computational part of doing the checksums and comparing them against both sides and having a smaller set that gets you to the point of actually moving data faster. But like all other problems, you're moving complexity because now you're checksumming all those files. If you're doing it in parallel, how many can you checksum simultaneously? What can your IO bandwidth on the, the system handle that you're now instead of checksumming a million files one at a time sequentially, you're checksumming 10,000 at one time? Or the bash script that you're writing that can somehow figure out how to divide up the rsync commands into different directories. Talk about complexity. Yeah, none of these problems are easy. And the ones that are embarrassingly parallel, a lot of people have moved into that space. The, the first classic one that I can remember was ray tracers. They, each pixel of the final image doesn't depend on anything other than its own math. And so you could break a ray trace job into, you know, into four or into 16 or into whatever pixel range you want. It doesn't have to be powers of two. And you can divide it because it, no part of the job relies on any other part of the job. And similarly, the rsync example, building the checksums, each individual file can be, can be checksums in parallel, in actual parallel, because you're not trying to fight for concurrent resources for that. Now you're scheduling them somewhere, and that can be a concurrency problem depending on how many processors you have and how much disk you have and whatever else. But the embarrassingly parallel part of it, that's a different set of problems. And that's a that's where you bring to bear, oh, I've got a 300-node cluster. Oh, I've got a with, a, with a parallel file system attached. I've got huge processor and core counts. But when I started my career, a lot of the, the decisions about scale up versus scale out, scale up was actually a lot easier. Because everything it's was always easier to add RAM or add, you know, CPU cores. Mm -hmm. It was hard to sometimes hard to find boxes that were big enough. But that was the simple version. It was the oh, we'll, we'll just we'll make it bigger and it'll be better instead of and now with the cloud, you can always find a bigger box. Well, within sort of within you, reason, you can still hit those <laughs> limits. I've I've seen those limits unfortunately in production. Um, ooh, that's scary. But oh, Prometheus. Oh, oops, sorry. Well, Prometheus, is, we talk a lot in this this program about Prometheus and Elasticsearch because we've done a lot of visibility work. And this is a great example that Prometheus is bounded by the fact that you have a single scrape engine that is scraping the targets and you're, you basically have no parallelism with Prometheus. 
And Elasticsearch is bounded by 30 gigs of heat per node. And so you have to have parallelism there. And each of them scale and grow in different ways, and they're hard in different ways. But it's a great example of concurrency versus parallelism in the sense that on one, how big can we make a single box? And the other one is we can't make, it, we, we can't make any single box bigger than 30 gigs. So that's how we're scaling sideways now. Diagonal scaling. And there's, there's a whole bunch of people who are much more versed in this than I am that have worked out kind of perfectly, perfectly embarrassingly parallel problems scale linearly, but nothing actually scales linearly. And so people have worked out kind of the end state math of what happens as you keep on adding and adding and adding, because eventually the overhead, eventually metadata, eventually other pieces are going to kill you. Usually and, there's some limit you will approach. And speaking of Prometheus, I've really been very curious about what is sort of the upper limit of computational work, metrics ingestion that Prometheus can handle. Uh, because it's quite a powerful and well-written application. And I've seen it churn through an embarrassingly large amount of metrics. But eventually, I know that at some point it will stop adding it will stop adding capacity if I add more and more CPUs. Eventually, there will be a limit that I approach. Well, we discovered with Elk the limit of scaling out because the interconnects in Elastic eventually become the problem with every node having to connect and talk to every other node that after it gets so wide, they can't actually keep up with each other. And that becomes a problem and the limit in and of itself. Yeah, your network overhead becomes your scaling factor rather than CPU or disk or heap or whatever else. So none of these problems are, ma are magic bullets that actually solve it. And if you can get a bigger, a bigger single system that does it, that's easy. And it's straightforward and it kind of works. I keep thinking about the StatsD solutions that I've, I've worked with in the past. And coming into a situation, having folks complaining that the StatsD doesn't seem to be very accurate doesn't seem to work very well. And realizing that there was one Node.js StatsD daemon that was pretty much pegged at ingesting 30,000 packets a second. And it was dropping a lot of packets. And I figured out that if, well, pretty obviously, if you could set up multiple daemons in parallel, you could ingest 60,000 with two daemons or 90,000 with three daemons. Okay, so we've got to have the concurrent part, which was if a machine sends me the same metric, I've got to make sure that metric gets to the same backend stats D daemon. Otherwise, my data becomes unsafe. So I ended up writing a different load balancer that sort of sat in the middle, and it did some handy work, like shoving multiple stats D packets, stats D metrics in the single UDP packet. System calls are expensive, yo, and string operations are relatively cheap, which got me about an order of magnitude speed improvement, plus being able to basically have my speed by adding additional daemons in the back end. And finally, as I had to scale more, uh, I switched to uh, StatSite, which is a C implementation of the StatSite, the StatsD daemon. And... Let me tell you, C runs about two orders of magnitude faster than Node.js. It's kind of funny. And I had those two orders of magnitude. 
I was making the packets more efficient. I had worked down every sort of aspect of the ingestion chain, trying to see what tuning, how can I make this more efficient? And there was a lot of steps. There's a lot of concurrency versus parallelism. But eventually I arrived to a really efficient system for ingesting stats metrics that was relatively straightforward to understand. Sort of. But you're still using the stats D at the end, so. <laughs> well, that's another problem. And actually, this points but out really the, the network traffic of and dealing with that back in data was was the fascinating part for me. So this brings up another thing that I wanted to to mention that as a you know we we do DevOps, we do site operations, we do SRE, we do systems engineering, we do systems programming. We we have all these hats that we've worn over the years because they keep on changing changing the name of the hat. The languages we reach for. Well, the languages we reach for to solve problems, you know, a really simple problem, you reach for Bash because it's installed everywhere and it just works. But it's not, it doesn't have a lot of the niceties. And I was really enamored with Python for a long time, right up until... I think I was, we all were. Well, for me, the the end of it was when I had to start using the multiprocess model in Python. <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's ugly and it's hard. And I was doing something I should not have been doing. I completely grant that. I was I was trying to pull... Kafka traffic stats and lag stats per consumer group, and there were literally hundreds. I was working on this for another team, and some of these these scrapes were taking a long time. So we were trying to figure working on timeouts, and oh, we'll all just run the scrapes in parallel because they're independent of each other. And oh, that the Python code there was so ugly. Oh, Python. So and then Python I found used Go. to have the global interpreter lock, which means you could have a multi-threaded Python piece of code, but you could never actually run it in parallel because only one thread of the interpreter could run at any one point in time. And that was a problem with Python for years. And there's a version of Python that I think Eve Online still uses called Stackless Python. And they have, they haven't removed the the global interpreter lock completely, but they've done some interesting things to make the concurrency model significantly better. I haven't used it personally. I haven't had the need to get into that level of complexity because I found Go. And and Go makes all those concurrency things. It doesn't make them not unsafe to do badly if you're stupid or if you, sorry, if you hold the tool wrong, but it makes the tool much easier to hold. And it's not perfect. In well-written C is still faster than Go, but... Go makes writing concurrent programs really, really pleasant. Yeah, what really attracted me to Go in the beginning was the CSP model of concurrency. And note concurrency here. And the fact that there are primitives in the language to allow you to do multi-threads, lightweight threads, communication between the threads, and it's quite simplistic. And that that made the language really, really, really quite powerful. Concurrency, though, um, it doesn't matter if you have one core or, or a bunch of cores for Go. The concurrency algorithm is uh, cooperative. So one thread can take the CPU if another thread relinquishes it, which adds, you know, bits of fun. Um Go is written well enough uh, that if you have multi-cores available, it will attempt to run threads on multiple cores involving 
uh, or creating some parallelism. Um, so you started to kind of get some of the best of both worlds. The only, my only recent experience right at threaded stuff has been in Scala, which it's a JVM language. So you come with that baggage. Um, however, as a functional programming language, it, everything's immutable. And when you start writing parallel stuff, it's simple because you can't go mucking with the data. Can't have, you don't have to worry about side effects if you can't have side effects, which makes for writing easily parallel code, but you still got to get everything back together at the end and get things sane. And that's, no matter how easy the language is for executing things in parallel, you still got to put it all back together at some point. And, and it's really part of when the language was designed, which, you know, dictates which problems it was sort of designed to be able to tackle. And we've got the traditional sort of Unix threading model, uh, you know, pthreads and C, uh, if you're familiar with Python's uh, threading interface, all very, very similar and really painful to use. Python has some nice wrap, nicer wrappers around being multi-threaded. Yeah, with Go, and there are other languages that have uh, similar properties where you have some native tools to be able to build concurrent and parallel code. And that is so vastly helpful. Years ago, I worked on an IVR system in C, obviously multi-threaded to be handled multiple phone calls at once. And anything's going to be an improvement as far as writing the code. However, as you pointed out, Nothing is as fast as C, but it always it gives you plenty of tools to hang yourself with. Well, it's also important to remember that you cannot make complexity go away. You can move it. You can move it from one part of the stack to another, to a place where it's easier to either see it or to parse it or to deal with it. But the complexity itself will always be there. So if you have a complex problem to solve, you will always have the complexity in that problem. And you will have to go find a way to manage it. And if you want to do it in C, well, your complexity is going to live right there in C with you when you're writing the program. If you move it to Go, there's other pieces where it moves around to. And so you just have to be cognizant of that. There's a quote that you have, Jack, somewhere about um, fools ignore complexity. Pragmatists try to try to move it or something. There, there's a... <laughs> it's an Alan uh, Perilous quote. Um, let's put it in the show notes, Brendan. Okay. Fools ignore complexity. Pragmatists suffer it. Some can avoid it. Geniuses remove it. I've always liked that quote. So I'm also going to throw a, a link into the show notes to a, a talk that Rob Pike gave at Heroku's Waza conference in 2012. Um, Rob Pike works for... Rob Pike, known for the Go programming languages. And he talks about concurrency and parallelism in Go and kind of – this was early days of Go relative to now. And one of the quotes that stood out to me was that he said, concurrency is about dealing with lots of things at once. Parallelism is about doing lots of things at once. And I thought that was a reasonably concise way to – That's perfect. To approach the problem or to, to present the problem. And there's lots of ways when you're building anything – to deal with all the threads or deal with all of the, the inbound connections or deal with all of whatever at the same time. Being able to appropriately process them and know which ones you can process in parallel truly at the same time is a different set of problems. And when you can get true parallelism, 
you can really speed things up. And it's really awesome as a systems designer or a systems engineer to be able to bring that to bear. But careful. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at, oper- at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 85th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Ken Mink. I'd tell you a UDP joke, but I'm not sure you'd get it. <laughs>